course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag Diaries, a duct tapes and beer production, with additional support from New Belgium Brewing, Kuat Racks, and Chaco. I just don't think my ghost stories are very good. This is Aiden Haley. He works with us at Duct Tape and Beer, and we're talking about ghosts and other things that go bump in the night. I've never seen a ghost. I've never felt like I'm about to see a ghost. I've never had some strange feeling when I've walked into the room. I'm not a skeptic, but I've just never seen it. So I just, I don't know. I don't have any reason to believe in it. And it's definitely above my pay grade to say one way or another whether or not ghosts exist. But Aiden, well, do you believe in ghosts? I absolutely, yeah. Yes, I absolutely believe in ghosts. I, don't, I just don't know where the energy goes that our bodies create when we die. So I definitely believe in spirits. I mean, why else would you feel creepy when you, like, walked into some weird room, you know? Tell me one of your stories. Lay it on me. Come on. Let's hear it. The story starts in college. It's about 10.30. I have class the next day, and my buddy Jeff calls up and he's working on his senior thesis. Um, He's making a documentary about haunted Colorado. And he's been doing research all month about all these different places in Colorado that are haunted. And he wants to drive out to one that night and get there around two in the morning. And of course I say yes. So we leave school at about midnight and We drive out east of Denver into the sticks, and we spend the next hour trying to decipher these directions to this bridge over this wash that has supposedly experienced a lot of trauma. Some of the common apparitions are a Native American on a horse up on the hill above the wash. Sometimes people hear the beatings of like the Native American war drums. More recently, A young girl and a friend were killed in a car accident when a group of them were driving too fast on the dirt roads and lost control right at the bridge. So sometimes people will see a young girl. So Jeff thought that there was opportunity to experience one of these spirits. And so when we finally found the wash, it was pretty spooky. It was a little overpass above this wash, a little grove of trees, and then this one solitary light from this building from a ranch that was right near the road. Jeff started to just wander around in the dark with a video camera and a tape recorder, just calling out to the spirits. It sounded really weird, but I guess it had worked for him 
that previous month when he was going to all these different places. Jeff tried to like manufacture a seance. <laughs> dude, you, the dude manufactured a seance? It was ridiculous. Like we were standing on this overpass in the middle of fucking nowhere, like calling out into the darkness. And nothing happened. We kind of were a little like peeved. Like we weren't peeved. Like we were spooked driving up and we we're like really psyched that we might like see ghosts and we're like, is this a bad idea? Is this a good idea? Are they going to like possess us for the rest of our lives? And like, are we going to be like, you know, those teenagers on the news that get killed or go crazy or something? And I'm kind of a hypochondriac to begin with. So I was like, all these different scenarios were racing through my mind, but nothing happened. And a couple days later, I get a call from Jeff, and he is noticeably like excited, and he tells me that he, he that I should come over to his house because he has something on the audio from the audio recording that he took that night. And my mind's racing as to like what it could be, and we get up. He sits in the room. He sets up his computer. And he doesn't tell me what it is that he has heard. He just wants me to like listen to it so as to maybe verify, you know, what he's heard. So he starts the track. It's like the sound of an empty room, you know, a quiet, or it's the sound of silence, basically. And then out of that kind of white noise comes a very distinctly female voice that says, you should not be here. That really spooked me out. I know that you can be kind of predisposed to like seeing what you want to see and hearing what you want to hear, but sometimes you kind of hear what you don't want to hear and it freaks you out a little bit. <laughs> But I don't really know how else to explain it other than it could potentially have been the spirit of that young girl. It's kind of creepy. Unfortunately, Jeff does not have the recording anymore. Of course, right? And even though I'm not sure where I stand on ghosts, I believe that Aiden heard something. And I think Aiden believes he heard something. Sure, maybe... Jeff had had him primed to hear something when they went ghost hunting, but maybe not. And how do we explain these things that we had no intention of seeing or hearing? Tricks of the mind or something else? Today we present two tales from Justin Giro and Melina Coogan about seeing something you really, really don't want to see. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Tales of Terror. When I was 21, I lived in a wood lean-to on the edge of jungle wilderness on the big island of Hawaii. I worked picking coffee cherry and pruning plants on the volcanic slopes. On my days off, I'd hitchhike to local secrets, camping on lonely beaches and hiking along cliffs of volcanic rock that towered over the crashing swell of the Pacific. With every adventure, 
the magnificent natural beauty of the island remained constant. Hawaiian folklore says that a vast number of supernatural creatures and spirits protect it. The stories entertained me, but I didn't take them too seriously. After a month, I traveled to work at a new farm in Puna, a remote district with few tourists. I worked with two other guys, Casey, a college linebacker turned creative writer, and Kyle, a former high school wide receiver, state champion 400-meter hurdler, and golden glove boxer. Kyle grew up in San Antonio. He never met his father, even though they lived on the same street, and circumstances took him away from his mother before he reached grade school. He lost siblings to gang violence. He told me if the inner city didn't kill you, it would kill your soul. So when he saved enough money to get out, he did. My first weekend in Pune, the three of us sat around a campfire. Casey cracked a beer and exclaimed that we needed marshmallows. But Kyle had his gaze fixed on the flames, his mind clearly wandering elsewhere. Casey asked Kyle if he was doing okay. Kyle replied with an unconvincing affirmation. He looked towards the thick wall of vine-choked trees that marked the entrance to the jungle, as if he expected something to walk out. Casey shifted a log on the fire, igniting life into the embers, as though warding off whatever lurked in the shadows. Brimming with curiosity, I asked what had happened. Kyle just stared into the fire. Casey looked at him pausing briefly before gently prodding him to tell. Kyle made a tisk sound, arguing that he didn't want to scare me away, but eventually he gave in. I needed to know. On Kyle's second night on the island, he had awoken suddenly from his sleep. Outside his window, he saw a man wearing a mask, painted and carved out of wood. Even in the darkness, Kyle could see the distinct muscular lines of the man's torso. The man stared at Kyle for several long moments, gaze unflinching, turned and vanished. Kyle tried to remain calm and rationalize the situation. Could have been Casey hazing the new kid? Unlikely, as the huts were converted chicken coops raised five feet off the ground to prevent flooding during the rainy season. Casey couldn't have climbed that high and disappear without a sound. Kyle reluctantly dismissed the incident as a vivid dream and went back to sleep. But soon he jolted back to consciousness. The hinges of the door groaned as an unknown force slowly pushed it open in the wrong direction. A fog crept through the entrance, crawling towards the bed. Kyle willed his body to move, but felt a pressure against his chest, resonating throughout his body. Paralyzed, Kyle lay there as the smoky entity enveloped him. Powerless, he gave in to the apparition. He did not scream, he did not struggle, he just lay there, waiting. An eternity passed. The fog rolled over Kyle's body, restraining him, examining him. 
Eventually, the captor flowed back through the doorway, the hinges whining as the door closed. Released from the spell, Kyle sat up on the edge of his bed. Dazed and terrified, he began to pack up the few things he brought. He could make it to town and catch an early bus, but then what? He had no contacts and barely any money, so he sat on his bed until dawn and tried to work as if nothing had happened. But Casey could tell something was wrong and coax the story out. Having his own stories of alien encounters and Sasquatch, he concluded that a tiki warrior had visited Kyle. Tiki gods are personifications of natural forces in Hawaiian mythology, watching over realms from peace to agriculture to life and death. They take on forms of shark men, dogs, wild boar, and even massive warriors. All tiki gods, though, protect the sanctity of the island. Kyle confessed he harbored a lot of anxiety, shadowboxing in the privacy of his hut. He speculated that the tiki warrior questioned his intentions and visited to make sure he didn't bring violence or negativity to the island. Kyle believed the entity had tested him, seeing what response it would evoke. By staying calm and peaceful, Kyle had passed the test. We sat for a while, in silence, watching the flames of the fire recede into shimmering embers. The effervescent light was a stark contrast to the absolute and consuming darkness of the night that now surrounded me. I looked towards the jungle, unable to see anything. But I wondered, what could see me? Up next, Melina Coogan's tale of getting lost in the woods. I was 15 when I got terribly lost in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. I was a student at the Academy at Adventure Quest, an extraordinary but doomed outdoor high school based out of Vermont. My classmate Andy and I, along with four of our teachers, planned to hike 10 miles. We would hike to the top of Mount Lafayette, across three more summits, and loop back to the parking lot that evening. The morning air of that cold December day stung at the exposed skin on our faces. A whiteout blew in as we reached the first summit, obliterating the view in all directions. Susie, my math teacher, turned back, but the rest of us pushed forward. My teachers were in their early twenties, confident and ruggedly good-looking, and I would have followed them to the ends of the earth. Which is exactly what it felt like as we fought our way into the white wind. We quickly lost the trail, but kept hiking, stumbling between random rock piles that we hoped were cairns. I still don't understand why we didn't turn around while we still had light. I suppose the debilitating cold and the unrelenting scream of the wind had disoriented us past the point of logic. We struggled forward all day, hoping that the storm would let up or a trail marker would come into view. Still lost above treeline as the sun set, we began to realize our situation had grown dire. With wind chill, 
The recorded temperature on the ridge that evening was 40 degrees below zero. We bailed to a lower elevation. On an unknown trail, we plunged further into that frozen Pemigewasset wilderness. Eventually, in the dark woods, we lost all semblance of a route and hiked aimlessly down through dense forest. My lightweight leather hiking boots were absurd for the conditions. My feet broke through the thin ice of streams and froze solid. I walked on two numb bricks of ice. The Pemigewasset stretches for 45,000 acres. Somewhere inside of it, we dragged our exhausted bodies through thigh-deep snow. Eventually, Andy and I could not walk anymore. I asked the teachers if we could crawl, and they agreed. But shortly after, we decided to stop for the night. Andy and I lay in the snow as they started a fire with bark and pine needles. Things felt very slow and strange. I didn't feel cold exactly, more like half-conscious. We shared one rock-hard orange, and I remember putting my feet into the flames and Andy nudging me, mumbling that my socks were on fire. I watched my feet burning and felt nothing. Hypothermia had made us too sluggish to even feel scared. I slept a little bit that night, my limbs tangled with Andy's on a pile of pine boughs. Our clothes were frozen stiff, and I could feel his body shivering inside his jacket. Every so often, my eyes would open to glimpse the stars, the trees, and the reality of the situation would register. At dawn, we voted to retrace our steps, back up the ridge. Black rings from the smoke of the pine fire encircled our swollen eyes and mouths. When we emerged from the trees, mottled white clouds adorned the bright morning sky. The scouring wind had left an icy crust over hard-packed snow. We climbed up, falling over and over on the slick surface. I didn't know where we were on the ridge, or the name of the peak in front of us only that we were a long, long way from a parking lot or a trailhead or any place where we could see another hiker. As we neared the summit, the teachers argued about which way to go, screaming over the wind's unrelenting howl. And that's when I saw a man standing on top of the rounded summit in front of us. It had been empty moments ago, snow blowing in a plume off of one side. I looked away, and then he was standing there, alone, watching us. Our group fell silent as one by one we spotted him. From 50 yards away, dressed in a long black trench coat, he looked human, almost. Maybe a little too tall. Thick, matted hair like fat dreadlocks covered his face and almost reached his waist. He held one arm out to the side, the sleeve blowing backwards in the wind. The other arm pointed towards us, and then to him, then to us, beckoning. Staring at him, I felt not the sharp pang of terror, but a cold, exhausting defeat spreading through me. We stood quietly, unmoving, transfixed. Then Megan, our Spanish teacher, started shouting that he must be a rescuer, or maybe he needed our help. Yet the probability of a lone hiker, 
without a backpack or gear or a proper coat suddenly appearing on this remote summit after a storm seemed almost zero. Nick, the leader of the trip, began walking forward with an empty look in his eyes. Megan started crying as she followed him, and I wanted to stay away, fearing what would happen when we reached him. But I was too tired to argue. We only made it a few yards when Mike started to push us in another direction. A seasoned outward-bound instructor, Mike was arguably the best off of all of us. He'd stayed alert all night, feeding the fire and checking on Andy and I, and didn't seem to be engulfed in the hypothermic fog like the rest of us. Shouting, he instructed us to avoid the summit and take the longer, lower route. So we changed course, pushing through the thick, snow-covered juniper bushes that covered the side of the mountain. Their branches caught and clawed at my face and hair, but I can recall a feeling of utter relief as we turned around. I had one very clear thought. With the screaming cold and gusting wind and that lone black figure, that summit looked just like hell. The sun was setting for the second time when we finally met up with our original trail. We reached the parking lot at 8 p.m. Rescuers and news trucks swarmed as paramedics loaded Andy, Megan, and I into an ambulance. As we sped towards Littleton Hospital, I pulled off my boot and studied the black, blocky flesh of my foot. My hysterical parents met us at the hospital. They had spent the night filling out missing person descriptions and waiting, my mother throwing up every hour in a McDonald's bathroom. The surgeon told us that after I stabilized, he'd have to amputate all ten toes. He said that 100 rescuers and heat-seeking helicopters from the Coast Guard had searched for my group, that we'd wandered so far off track that not one person had seen us. And I thought, one person saw us. But I said nothing. I never mentioned the man we had seen. Not to the doctors, and certainly not to my parents, only to the four others who were lost with me, and then only briefly. A few days later, when I got out of the hospital... We went out to a diner to discuss all the mistakes we had made. At the end of the meal, I brought up the man on the ridge. Was I crazy, I asked. Did you see him too? They nodded, and we picked at our food. And Megan said simply, That was death, wasn't it? And Mike answered, Yeah, we were pretty close. And then we changed the subject. Man, with stories like these, I think I may stay inside for a little while. Special thanks to Tales of Terror winners Justin Juro and Melina Coogan. And a little update on Melina. Fortunately, her toes did not have to be amputated and she recovered fully. Many thanks to all who submitted a story for the contest. We had a scary good time reading them. Incredible. Music today by Night's Bright Colors, Sam Haynes, Dead Poet Society, A Single Voice, and M. Frick, all courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley. Support for the Diaries comes from the good people at Patagonia. They are proud to announce that all of their down products, that's right, all of them, now contain 100% traceable down, ensuring better welfare for animals. Patagonia continues to be an industry leader in building better products that are mindful of our ecosystems at all levels. Learn more at patagonia.com. 
And support also comes from Chaco. With fall getting into full swing, check out their lineup of hiking boots and shoes at chacos.com or follow them on Twitter at Chaco's USA. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly. And from Kuat Racks, the little company who knew they could make a better bike rack. This episode of The Diaries was produced by Becca Cahal and Jen Altschul. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbags, Tales of Terror. Happy Halloween from all of us at The Diaries.